Over the next three-ish months to the end of the year, not too worried about it. By the end of 2022, yes. I think that there might be a very stiff correction coming down the line. Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with macro research analyst Jim Bianco. If you haven't yet watched part one of our discussion with Jim, in which he explains why contagion from a growing number of directions is throwing a monkey wrench into the gears of the global economy, head over to our channel at youtube.com slash Wealthion and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment perspective that Jim and our partners at New Harbor Financial share in this video. Oh, and if you haven't yet, please don't forget to support this channel by first liking this video and then clicking the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Believe it or not, these tiny steps really do help us out. Okay, let's get started watching part two of our interview with Jim Bianco. So Jim, I, I, I gotta ask this. Um, it's a dual question, but it's a short one. Um, one is this head-scratching dynamic that you just talked about, where everything is, you know, economy is slowing, uh, and uh, but, but and prices are rising, and yet people are who don't have jobs are stepping up and being willing to pay. Um, a, do you see that as transitory? Right. In other words, in my mind, I just don't think how, I don't see how that can last for very long, and it just might be because people still have some cushion left over from all the stimulus that's been given to date. Um, so one is a transitory and B, and I'm trying to think of a, of a, of a respectful way to ask this question. Um, so just I'm, just gonna ask it. It, I'm just gonna ask it directly with as much respect as I can muster in my head, but is the American consumer just a freaking idiot? No, I don't think they're an idiot. Uh, I'll start with that, with it, with that one first. I, I'll come back to, I think, you know, we just, we just, cannot comprehend what a sitting at home a for a year did to change everybody's psyche is really what it was. If you want to, if you want to call them shell-shocked, if you want to call them, you know, um, you know, blindsided or something like that, you can, you can use those words as well too. But I think that, like I said, like the great depression, I think their attitudes have just changed. And they just have, there's just been a rethink. Look, I found the same thing as well, too, because I work with a lot of financial services companies. And I can tell you, a lot of these companies that had people that made well in the six figures, that in, and I mean, lots of, virtually every company I talk to across the board, okay, it's after Labor Day, it's time to get everybody back in the office. And these people that make all this good money and all these decent positions, no, I quit. I don't want to go yeah. back to the office. I just quit. There, that was unthinkable before the pandemic that somebody would actually consider doing something like that. And from the stock boy at the local big box retailer all the way up the line, you've got that rethink. So I don't think that they're they're being idiots. I just think that they've they've reassessed. Maybe they've had a midlife crisis. Maybe they've seen something else. You know, by sitting at home for a year or, or something that we don't comprehend. Uh, and again, you're right. Are they, are they just sitting around looking at their bank account and judging, you know, how many more weeks or months they can go without work? Boy, that's a that would have been the ultimate of irresponsibility in 2019. Oh, I don't need to go find a job now. I can hang out for three more months. I got three more months worth of, of uh, rent payments before I run out of money. And then I'll go look for a job. 
No one thought that way. No one simply, we weren't wired like that uh, prior, prior to the pandemic, but we are now. And so I think we really got to start to understand how things have changed. And what I'm leading up to is maybe our perceptions about the economy and what a good economy and what a bad economy is, is changing as well too. And we're just not able to get our head around it. It's the difficult one. I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm as stunned as you are that people are behaving this way. And yet I'm kind of just saying there's something more than them just being idiots. Maybe there's something they saw in the last year sitting at home that changed their outlook. And we need to understand they've got a different outlook about things and as opposed to the way that we used to think about the world in 2019. All right. Well, well I, I think this is a really important insight that you brought here, which is just that the consumer mindset has changed. It's been it's been um, imprinted by what we just went through with COVID the same way that society was going through the Great Depression. And, and I think the answer is, is we don't know yet exactly how and, and what the ramifications are going to be. So I think it is important, you know, you, you are right, which is that uh, the, the, the mindset has changed. You know, my, my worry here, it sounds like a share it, is just looking at the current behavior that we're looking at right now, which is the willingness to spend when the future income stream looks so uncertain, especially in a rising cost environment. It just feels reckless to guys like you and I who are watching from the, the sidelines here. Uh, and I certainly hope it doesn't end as badly as I fear it could, which is sort of the, the genesis of my question here in general. But I, I Can I just say, I share your concern too. And maybe part of that was, go back to the spring of 2020. Everybody had the hell scared out of them. This is it. This is going to be worse than the Great Depression. We're going to have soup lines. We're going to have bread lines. It's going to be as bad as youth can possibly imagine. And then the helicopters came, they threw money the markets out the window. all-time highs within a couple of months, yeah. <laughs> right, right. So, so, hey, aren't you worried that you're going to run out of money? No, no. I, I went through the spring of 2020. Don't worry. At some point, the helicopters will be back. You're throwing money out the window or something like that. And maybe it's going to have to take, if you want to get everybody's mindset back to some pre-2019 is... Things are going to have to get bad. There ain't going to be no stimulus. It's going to get worse. There's going to be no stimulus. It's going to get catastrophic. There's going to be no stimulus. Oh, okay. Now maybe I better start rethinking this. But boy, that we're going to have to go through a lot of pain before we get there because I think there might be an assumption that you know when it gets bad enough, kind of like what the financial markets are, right? Why don't people? Why do people keep buying corporate bonds at these levels or high yield at three percent yields? Because the Fed. <laughs> Because the Fed will buy them if it gets bad. Well, the Fed stopped buying. Well, don't worry. Give me three bad days in the markets and the Fed will crank up the printing press. The public's got the same idea, right? Um, you know, it, it, when it gets bad enough, they'll start putting money back in my checking account. It's just, but so just hang out. Don't worry. It will come uh, All right, as well. well. This is the subject for a whole other hour, three hour long interview with you, Jim. Yeah. But, but it really all does come back to the Fed, at least in my mind. You know, intervention leads to distortion. Distortion then ruins true price discovery, and people begin making decisions based upon the distortion, distorted prices, which are not reality. And at some point, reality always comes back to bear. And when it does, it just destroys the people who were, you know, living in the fantasy life that the distortions all created. So anyways, we could, we could go into that uh, forever. Um, I want to try, 
I've got a ton of questions I'm not going to get to here. Um, but real quick, as we leave the Fed, there is one important thing. So uh, an, another way in which um, we were talking about how uh, you know the mindset is changing, um, it's interesting. Maybe the mindset might be changing uh, towards the Fed. And we're in the very early days of this, but the Fed really got caught with its pants down recently, where a couple of, of high-ranking Fed executives uh, were found out to have been trading all last year, you know, million million dollar trades many times um, that benefited from the policy that these guys were policies that these guys were voting for, right? And I think the public finally woke up and said, "Wow, well, that actually doesn't seem fair at all." The guys that are writing the rules are kind of front running all this. Um, I'd go to jail if I did this, but but they're not, right? Um, I didn't see the conference. Was was Powell anybody probe him about that at all? Oh, yeah, they probed him quite a bit about it. They even probed him about his own positions because, you know, he owned a bunch of municipal bonds. Uh, and he said that, um, you know, I owned he literally said I, I own municipal bonds because I thought that they were like, you know, outside the scope of what the Fed was going to do. But then 2020 came and we started buying muni bonds. And, you know, he didn't say it, but he was implying with my muni bond portfolio went up um, quite a bit uh, as well, too. But, yes, they were. They were probed about it and, you know, and they gave the typical bureaucratic answer, right? The general counsel looked at it and they said that no rules were violated. Everything was okay, but we're going to change the rules. So it never happens again. It's basically the way that they're going to, they're the way that they're going to deal with it. No, it is, it is problematic, especially when you get to Bob Kaplan, who's the Dallas fed president, uh, federal reserve president of Dallas. He was day trading S&P futures all throughout the whole pandemic crisis and the decline yeah, down. He was literally, yes, he was day trading S&P futures um, and also bought a, a, a big chunk of the, um, uh, uh, the Kansas City Royals baseball team uh, at the same time as well, too. He's a former Goldman Sachs managing director, so he's always he's got a lot of money and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, that that I, I cannot believe he did that. And I cannot believe that the general counsel of the Dallas Fed said, OK, no problem here. Nothing to see uh, as well and signed off on that as well. So, yeah, no, I think they've got a real problem on their hands because, you know, central banks operate on credibility and they've got and they've got an enormous responsibility uh, with, the, you know, their fingers on financial markets. And if they're starting to play around with this and then you've got Eric Rosengren in the Boston Fed who was buying REITs. And they were basically buying mortgages and the mortgages that the Fed was buying were directly benefiting the REITs that he was buying as well, too. Uh, you know, so they've, they've got an issue on their hands because they broadened the scope of the Fed interventions in the Fed in the market so much. Now, there's almost nothing that a Federal Reserve official can invest in that doesn't fall into their reach. I mean, there's ways they can get around it. But Look, they've, they've made this is a bet they made for themselves and they're going to have to deal with it. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting here because in, I'm sure you've heard all the people use the analogies of, you know, the Fed is is the arsonist that started the fire, but they're being cheered as the firemen who are coming to the rescue and whatnot. Right. Uh, and I think in this story, um, a lot of a lot of the real fundamental issues that we rail about, you know, um, overpriced assets, um, dangerously overpriced assets, uh, accelerating wealth equality and whatnot. You really can trace back to Fed policy is really at the heart of a lot of these things. But the Fed is still being treated as the hero in the story. And this may be one of the very first developments that is maybe putting some cracks in that trust and that faith and maybe opening more critical dialogue going forward about what the 
really what the limits should be on what the Fed is doing. So I, you know what, I'll just say, I absolutely agree with you that, that the Federal Reserve, I've, I've quipped a couple of times that the Federal Reserve is a perfectly created wealth inequality machine, that they basically help the wealthy (laughs) at the expense of the poor. And I'll go you one step further. I think, yes, cryptocurrencies, the problem with them is that, you know, you've got insane speculation in one pond, but on the other hand, they're trying to create a new financial system as well, too. And what does that create a new financial system about? The inherent inequality in the current financial system. It is so obvious and so painful for a lot of people how unfair the system is that that seems to be what they're trying to exploit with cryptocurrencies as well. And who's the leading charge of this is the Federal Reserve itself and in the way that, you know, the the system benefits the wealthy against the people that are unbanked or underbanked as well, too. They're just at such a disadvantage to everybody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I sing from the exact same song sheet as you there, Jim. Um, So real quick, transitioning to cryptos, um, another development, uh, I I could see you and I were sort of tracking it in real time on Twitter as he was announcing it, but uh, SEC Chair Gary Gensler um, you know, basically just came out with pretty declarative statements that uh, the SEC is going to be taking much tighter uh, control or having you know, much lower tolerance level uh, for kind of the Wild West nature of, of the cryptocurrency universe and going to be regulating it much more, uh, looking at taxes much harder. Um, it, it basically just sort of sounded like, all right, guys, the sheriff's in town now, we're going to clean things up here. Um, you've had a fun ride, but uh, don't expect it to be fun going forward, or at least as fun. Um, you followed this much more closely than I. Um, what were your takeaways from that? And, and speak for a second, too, about how I think the crypto world was pretty excited that Gensler was coming in because he had taught a class at MIT in his previous life about the cryptocurrencies and thought he might be more favorable. But there's a little bit of a sense of betrayal at this point, I sense. Yeah, yeah, you know, he right. He, uh, he was at the CFTC. He was at MIT. He taught a class on blockchain. He taught a class on decentralized finance. The cryptocurrency world was excited because, you know, in their words, he gets it. And, and at least when he was at MIT, he seemed to get it. Then he gets to Washington. And one of the things I've learned about Washington is you get a position of power like you're the chairman of the SEC. Well, you get to sit in a room you know, with the Federal Reserve chairman, with the the Treasury secretary, maybe with the president, and you guys get to formulate policy. You get to speak your mind. Hey, this is what I think the policy should be. And everybody will take you seriously. But at the end of the day, they, and they is maybe Janet Yellen, will tell you, here's what we've decided. Now your job as the head of the SEC is to, in the words I used, is to prostitute your reputation in your office. And you go out and you sell this. Even though it might not be what you want, you signed up for this job. We heard you out about what you think we should do. Now you go sell this. And if you can't sell this, you go back to MIT and somebody else can sell it. So he's out there pushing really hard. He came out and said he doesn't think that cryptocurrencies are going to last over the long term, um, that he thinks that they're going to flame out and go away. You were teaching freaking classes at MIT about this stuff two years ago. Now you're telling us that all those classes you were teaching those kids were about was stuff that was going to disappear in three years. So yeah, there's a, there is a real sense of betrayal by, uh, by Gensler, but this is the nature of being a bureaucrat in, in Washington. And they are going to push really hard. And when you really peel back and you hear what they're trying to say, 
they keep saying investor protection, but it really sounds more like incumbent protection is really what they're more afraid about. They're more afraid about what it means for the banking system, what it means for the regulators, um, uh, it, you know, as well to not necessarily what it means for the public. Yes, cryptocurrencies are the Wild West. And yes, there is some fraud and there's some rank out of control, irresponsible speculation. And yes, something should be done about that. But the answer is not destroy the whole system because some coins are moving too fast for your liking uh, as well. So I, it just seems like they're trying to do incumbent protection is what they're doing. And the last thought for you, if you look at, there's a company called Chain Analysis that looks at where cryptocurrencies are owned. In the top 20 countries, there's only one developed country in the top 20. The United States ranked number nine. Vietnam ranks number one as the, the biggest penetration of cryptocurrencies. If the SEC thinks, we're going to put rules on Americans and benefit the U.S. banks to prevent Americans from holding cryptocurrencies. When you've got the rest of the world jumping headlong in this, why the rest of the world? Because they're unbanked, they're underbanked. The financial system has been inherently unfair to them. They see cryptocurrencies, they see decentralized finance as something that could benefit them, like Panama accepting Bitcoin as one of their currencies as well, too. They can't stop it. They can they can make it messy in the middle, but they cannot stop it. And they're going to have to like wake up like mayors did when it came to Uber. They couldn't stop it. Uh, the, I know the taxi cab companies were screaming at the mayors, do something about these Uber guys. You can't allow them. We paid all this money for these taxi medallions. At the end of the day, they couldn't really stop them. And I think that they're going to have to realize that the same thing is going to happen with decentralized finance. Yeah, the, uh, it's the whole genie out of the bottle scenario. So um, again, yet another full hour interview I could do with you on just that topic, Jim. I'm going to keep you busy for the next couple of months, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, but I think your main point there too, which is, um, you know, the interpretation of what's what's happening here is it's it's sort of the empire strikes back, right? It, it is the reassertion of top-down control, um, which we're seeing in all sorts of different, you know, parts of the economy and society right now. So, um, all right, I'm going to do the highly unfair task of asking you to be uh, just just give your your blunt quick answers on some questions that I and our viewers would love to hear you expound okay, on more time. Yeah. Um, so how concerned are you of a, of a major correction or crash risk, given a the, um, you know, the record high valuations that uh, most asset prices are trading at now, and b all those deflationary uh, you know, elements that we talked about potentially happening next year, the various fiscal monetary cliffs, et cetera. Um, do, do you think it's a high risk? Is it something that keeps you up at night or not? Uh, not yet. I'll answer quickly. Over the next three-ish months to the end of the year, not too worried about it. By the end of 2022, yes. I think that there might be a very stiff correction coming down the line. I just not so sure it's ready to come right now. There's way too much pessimism in the marketplace for me to think that this is going to be the start of it. Okay. Um, and for uh, the prudent investor who um, uh, you know wants to position themselves smartly between now and then, uh, what favorite asset classes are you uh, most sanguine on right now? Uh, you know, I'm I'm a simple guy when it comes to that kind of stuff. I I own those same ETFs that everybody else owns. You know, and I'm not going to try and get cute and give you a sector or something like that. 
as long as I think that the market is going to continue its uptrend, as long as I think that every day people are going to continue to throw money in the market, at least through the end of the year, I think they are going to do that. I'm going to play. When I think that that something is going to change that's going to cause that, uh, uh, upset that, then I'll get out. And what that could be is much higher interest rates. If I was to see much, much, or much, much lower interest rates too. But as long as interest rates continue trending in their range like they have for the last few months, I think the game continues. Okay, game continues until we start breaking through the outlying edges of the current interest rate range. All right, great. Mm-hmm. Uh, last question, just so investment related. Uh, I know that you, uh, you know, are a fan of crypto, recommend that people have some exposure to crypto. Um, are there any other sort of alternate assets, hard assets, et cetera, that you think make sense in a portfolio now? Meaning not, not for a potential crash or whatnot, but just, just for the another year or so of status quo that you see? Yeah, I mean, I, I've pushed the idea that people should understand crypto and they should definitely get their head into it because I don't think it's going to go away. Now, as far as other alternative assets, see, the problem is, there's nothing that's cheap in this world, right? Real estate, that's definitely not cheap. Don't want to touch um, office real estate if, we, if nobody wants to go back to the office uh, as well, too. So I'll come back to the basic one that seems to work time and again, and that's precious metals. And maybe a little bit of commodities uh, as well, too. Though my problem with commodities is they're, they're a little hard to own with roll and futures and all that other stuff. But precious metals, I think, would probably be a good store of value over the long term they have, and I think that they will continue to be. All right, great. And with that, uh, Jim, I just thank you so much for giving us, packing so much (laughs) into this interview. Again, I look forward to having you on again in the future. Um, But uh, for folks that have watched and really enjoyed your insights, if they'd like to follow you and your work, where can they go? Twitter is probably the best place, at Bianco Research. You can follow me on LinkedIn. You can check out our website, BiancoResearch.com. Great. I'll put those URLs up on the screen when we do the editing for this. Uh, I'll let you go here, Jim, but uh, thank you so much and so great to see you. Thank you. All right. And Mike Preston, uh, folks, this is the time in the interview every week where I talk to the financial advisory firm that's endorsed by Wealthion to find out what the markets have done over the past week. Uh, I'm joined here this week by Mike Preston. His co-partner, John Lodra, is off for the week. Uh, Mike, but what a phenomenal interview with Jim Bianco. I'm curious to hear your reactions. Uh, thanks, Adam, and and uh, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, Jim's uh, just just fact-filled uh, uh, one-hour interview. It, it was wonderful. Just kind of reviewing some of the notes, almost all of which I agree with. I mean, Jim talked a lot about the omnipotence of the Fed, and you know, the Fed being the only subject that anyone wants to talk about anymore. It's amazing, you know, from our from our seat, literally every conversation, we talk about the Fed, the Fed, the Fed, the Fed. Um, you know, what if the Fed will never, or the, the Fed will never let markets go down, or the Fed, the Fed will just keep buying bonds and stocks. And if there's a small correction in the market, the Fed will just buy some more. And I'm always asked, almost in every conversation, how do you know that they're ever going to stop? You know, how do you know that they can't keep doing this forever? My, my opinion, my response is that they will keep doing this forever. There's nothing to say that they won't. They've shown absolutely no restraint and they will continue to react to every little dip in the market. The question really is, will they get away with it? Will it matter? I think that it will matter. It always has mattered in history and it will matter again. We're looking at unbelievable nosebleed levels of valuations and we're looking at a very dispersed market that is not showing very much participation. 
you know, one, one thing that I wanted to point out and, and that a lot of people don't realize is that this market is, is very, very dispersed. The transport, the Dow Jones Transportation Index topped in May. You know, we're talking almost five months ago now, and it's down 10% from that level. The New York uh, Stock Exchange Composite topped back in May. It had a little bit of a, a, run at the, a run at the high, but even like the Dow Jones, the Dow Jones topped in mid-May and then had five or six or seven days that it poked above that high to a new all-time high and then has now dropped back down to that level. So, and, and the same thing with the, you know, to, with, um, with some other assets like Bitcoin, for instance, we talked about Bitcoin. And I think that the blockchain is brilliant, but Bitcoin is absolutely part of this bubble that we're living through. Bitcoin topped in April so far and is down a good chunk since then. So we're seeing this, this grand top fanning out over many, many months. I know it's dangerous to pick an ultimate top. My point is that the, um, the belief in the omnipotence of the Fed, the amount of euphoria that we've seen going on six, eight, nine months now, and the lack of participation in this market are all classic warning signs. And so we're seeing every box being checked on what you'd expect to see in the largest bubble of our lifetimes and probably checked off times 10. And yet nobody cares. I mean, that's the definition of a grand bubble is almost everyone sees it. No one acts. And that's what I think we're living with right now. All right. Well, you know, Mike, that's a great observations. And the reason why I was sort of digging so much with Jim into the monetary and fiscal uh, cliffs that are coming up uh, is because uh, to to support the kind of distorted, you know, uh, highly distorted upwards asset prices that we have right now is, is you need constant fuel to keep them that high and moving higher. And, you know, over the past 10 years, that has been largely the role of the Fed, uh, you know, with its uh, QE programs. Uh, and then since the coronavirus, you know, it's been the Fed and Congress working in tandem. Uh, and of course, they've, they've blown prices to uh, even more record all-time highs. But to continue to move those prices higher or even just keep them where they are, you need to put more and more fuel on the fire. And if they are actually potentially taking fuel away, and I think Jim and I just went through all the reasons why it looks like they will. And if other major economies are doing the same thing, and, and you know, Jim said, look, China is definitely... Uh, in the process of tightening, um, then you know it, it really becomes very, very hard to make a rational case for how asset prices can sustainably continue moving higher from here. Uh, and you just you know did a great job of enumerating all the, the the risks and concerns around that. So, Mike, I know I don't have a ton of time with you because we ran long uh, with Jim there, but uh, kind of in wrapping up here, um, in looking at uh, either the recent volatility that we've seen in the markets of late. Uh, or anything else that's that's caught your radar, what would sort of your parting advice be to folks watching this here who are you know concerned about their wealth and um, uh, you know want to make sure that uh, if things do become more volatile from here going forward, that they're well positioned for it. In a word, get safer. You know, get get out of stocks to a large degree. We're we're going to keep saying the same thing that it makes sense to reduce stocks to you know one third of your portfolio or less. You call it thirty percent. It's going to give you a lot more ballast, if you will, to, to, to be able to survive what's coming. You know, it's probably, we don't know exactly the path of, of what's going to happen or what it's going to look like, but it wouldn't surprise us one bit to see this market fall by two thirds or more. And it could happen quickly. 
And I, nobody, it, it's very dangerous to, to predict exact moves, but it could start with a sudden drop. It could start with a mini crash. We could have a, a bear market that starts with a 15 or 20% drop in the matter of a week or two, or even shorter period of time. And then we can enter a protracted bear market that's much longer. Such a thing sounds almost unbelievable right now because the amount of buy-in to the unsinkability of this market is epic. You know, it's exactly what you'd expect to see near the top of the, the largest bubble of all time. But reduce risk substantially. Get stocks down to 30% or less. In bonds, move towards shorter duration bonds, high quality, shorter duration bonds. We've seen yields come down in the last bunch of months. And um, you know, we had a position in longer term bonds for a trade that we just took off last week. And then don't be afraid to hold a lot of cash. I, honestly, we think that cash is going to be okay, at least in the zero to two year time frame, where deflation is likely to be a bigger risk. Long term inflation and even hyperinflation is probably a problem. And don't forget, you know, a core position in precious metals, preferably in your hands, makes sense, maybe roughly 10% of invested assets. And just have some patience because we're really long in the tooth on this market. Almost nobody thinks it can go down anytime soon. I think there's going to be much better opportunities very soon. We're managing money that way with very, very little exposure to the stock market, maybe 10% total. And um, we'll be looking to get tactical on the way down. And um, even then, we'll probably be focusing more on non-US stocks, emerging market stocks, that kind of thing. So get safe, have some precious metals. Don't be afraid to hold a lot of cash in a nutshell is what, we, what we'd recommend. All right, great succinct summary. And if you're uh, a new viewer watching this, uh, I'm sure, you know, you, you might have been a little bit shocked by Mike saying the market could drop as much as two thirds or whatnot. But I just want to let you know that uh, Mike's in very good company there um, with a lot of very well-respected uh, veteran investors, the likes of like Jeremy Grantham, um, a, a, a large and growing number of billionaires. Uh, and, and again, uh, you know, longtime investors um, who have made predictions of anywhere from a 50 to an 80% plus market correction based upon today's heights and what history tells us. So um, it, it's as crazy as it sounds, uh, the historical precedent is well there for similar moments of, of times in market history, like where we are right now. Um, also, if you're a reviewer, uh, the folks at New Harbor Financial, uh, they offer free portfolio reviews to anybody who uh, just wants to get the counsel of a professional financial advisor who takes into the kind of takes into consideration the kind of risks that Jim and I talked about and then Mike enumerated here. Um, if you have a good financial advisor who can do that for you, great, stick with them. But if you don't, or you'd like the opinion of one that does, uh, you can reach out and, and schedule that free, you know, free, there's no strings attached, there's no expectation to work with them. If you're interested in learning how to do that, stick around at the end of the video, it's coming up in about 30 seconds, and it only takes you like three clicks of the mouse to, to set up one of those meetings with them. All right, well, as we wrap up here, um, if you'd like to support this channel and see us continue to get great guests like Jim, uh, do me a favor and just hit the like button and then click the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Very small steps for you, but if everybody watching this video takes them together, it actually does make a big positive difference for this channel. If you'd like to see who's coming on as a guest expert in the future or vote for one you'd like to see on the channel, just follow me on Twitter at, at Menlo Bear. 
Uh, I announce everything there, and I also read every suggestion that folks send to me on that platform. All right, and whatever happens in the markets from here, we will be tracking it on this program each week. And so, Mike, look forward to seeing you again here on the program next week. And everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Thanks a lot, Adam. I look forward to seeing you next week. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth. And because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA but for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right, with all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.